0: You're listening to In The Company, a podcast about humanizing work and designing better working lives. Each episode is curated to provoke you to think more deeply about things that matter in your career and life, and how to build your toolkit for how to thrive as a human in business today. We explore how we work from the inside out. I'm Kylie Lewis, and it's great to be in your company. Welcome. Today, we're in the company of Rachel Service. Rachel is the founder of Happiness Concierge, a kick-ass training company that helps people ace their work and lives. After suffering anxiety, depression and burnout in her 20s, she realised that work was killing her and so created Happiness Concierge to help other people be more impactful at work with less stress. Her training helps individuals in organisations learn tactical ways to make a bigger impact at work. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me, Kylie. I'm so excited to have you here today to talk about the things that we're going to talk about because they are so prevalent in work today and definitely need to have a conversation around how do we show up to work in a way that is good for us, good for the organisation, is sustainable and enables, you know, us to be able to, to reach some higher goals in our lives without taking ourselves down in the process. But before we jump into the fantastic... Fantastic work that you do at the Happiness Concierge. I would love to find out a little bit more about who we, Rachel, was back in New, your home country of New Zealand and what things did you love doing as a child?
1: Ooh. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm a loudie and I think I'm a loudie because I was one of five kids, Catholic family, growing up in New Zealand. Um, my mum was a teacher and now I academic. My dad was a salesman um and yeah mum said that when I was born I was in just such a rush to be born and I kind of have never stopped ever since <laughs> so you know she said you was just such like a puppy right she'd just run 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 and then <laughs> asleep on the floor and I don't know that that's changed and when I think about the younger Rachel I think one out one out of five kids I was definitely the loudest and um If there was a stage, I'd be on it. And if there wasn't a stage, I'd make one. And always making up dances and dance routines and terrible songs and, uh, you know, dressing up my little brother and sisters as props in my show. (laughs) And um, just grew up basically believing that I was, in fact, in Destiny's Child um, and that I was going to be Beyonce. Um, And only recently have I realised that's actually not true, but I've become my own version, I suppose, of a rock star. So, Yeah. (laughs)
0: fantastic so that's that's interesting that your mum was a teacher and your dad was in sales you know that obviously plays out in what you find yourself doing now in 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 your role but where were you in the birth order of those five kids I was number two so my older sister of
1: two years apart so mum mum and dad had five kids under all under the age of 10 and uh yeah wow and um, my older sister, two years above me, and she really took the looking after the gang role. And I think I was basically the naughty one. We took no responsibility. <laughs> just we were like, <laughs> uh, yeah, so number two, no responsibility only until recently, I suppose.
0: <laughs> so that's a learned skill in your adult years, right?
1: Right, reluctantly, yeah, reluctantly.
0: <laughs> and and now that you've learnt those things, you're you're sharing them with the rest of us. Those hard won lessons. Before we jump into that, the other question that I would really like to ask you is, as as now fully formed, Rachel, what what are some of the three guiding principles or beliefs that you have in that you hold in your life now? Oh, good
1: question. And um, I think I've come to realise that. We always have a choice in how we respond to things Um, and how we behave and how we talk and how we act towards others. Um, In my 20s, I very much believed that, you know, the world was happening to me and none of it was my fault. Um, And so I firmly believe now that we have a choice and now I know that studies and research proves that. You know, if we stay angry after 90 seconds, we've made a choice to do so. So you always have a choice in how you respond. Uh, through my work, I suppose I've discovered that most people don't want to be an asshole. They don't want to be a jerk. Um, most people do have good intentions and they want to do the right thing. They're just not given the tips or the tools or they haven't been given the life experiences or they've not been put in an opportunity where they can feel safe to say, I don't know how to be a grown-up in this situation. Um, and varies. Only a small percentage of people through my studies of psychology Um, have discovered that people do not want to change, um, with the exception, of course, of manipulative types who have no uh, change to their consequence if they do change. And I I think the third belief is that I really, really, really believe um, that workplaces have such a massive opportunity to shape the way that we behave at work, and we spend 80% of our time at work, Um, And therefore, the flow-on effects it has around behaviours, violence, uh, gendered violence in a way that flows on into the rest of our society. So, I think that there's a massive opportunity for workplaces to do some really kick-ass work around shaping the behaviours and teaching people how to use their emotions in a really constructive way.
0: Oh, amazing. Those... uh, uh, Absolutely, the impact that organisations have around shaping us um, is is you know one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation in this podcast and talk about you know what does what actually happens to humans inside organisations, the light and the dark of that. But perhaps we need to go back, rewind now a little bit back to what it was like for you in your twenties, working. Given that. You were in a hurry to be born, you know. From the moment that you that you took your first breath, you were in a hurry a lot. How did that manifest in your working life in your twenties?
1: I suppose I always felt like time was running out, or that I was wasting time instead of spending time. Um, and I've now reframed that: wasting time is just spending time. <laughs> And I think that I I had all this ambition, but I didn't yet have the skills or the experience or a really a clear goal of where I was going. And someone, you know, I'm I'm the daughter of a salesman. I'm really good at the gift of the gab. I can sell myself into any job, so much so that I kept getting jobs that were completely out of my league. Um, And I didn't know how to say no. Uh, I didn't know how to ask for help. Um, And I just was too embarrassing to ask for help. Are you crazy? That would mean I'm a, quote, failure, you know. Um, so what that meant is that I just worked as hard as possible, um, said yes to everything, um, and, and and crucially uh, tied my identity of who I was as a person to how, quote, successful I was at work. And that meant, in my mind, working as long hours as possible, um, sighing that I was so busy <laughs> um, as a sign of how important I was in life and, you know, things around how much, money I was making uh, started to define me. Um, And and just so you're aware, that money ranged from anything from my first job being $18,000 a year for an ad sales executive to what would be $70,000 a year for a communications rep. So, you know, uh, we're talking about money which would sit around the average uh, Australian wage between 50 dollars $50,000 $50,000 a year, uh, but still that came to define how good I was both in my performance at work and as a person. And truth be told, I didn't actually have an identity out of work. So, um, yeah, a lot of lessons hard learned. And I suppose the first lesson was when I passed out in the bathroom in my early 20s. Um, and you know, you're young in your young 20s, you think YOLO, you just move on. I learned nothing from that. And then uh, in my mid-20s, went through a breakup and thought, oh, well, I don't need to deal with those hard feelings. I'll just throw myself into work. And then not being able to stand up one day due to lack of fatigue. And then later in my 30s, going through freelance work going, oh, I'm going to see a burnout coming here. Oh, oh, how come I can see that I created this environment and in fact, I'm the common denominator here. And maybe there's something that I can do differently
0: to change that in future. Mm. So what, what industry were you working in, Rach, to, to, to foster, you know, I mean, you could probably apply it to any, any industry, but do you think the industry that you were working in kind of encouraged that hyper overwork?
1: Well, I think I'd worked both client side. I was in PR and communications, um, which is a very reactive industry. So you very much had to be available at a minute's notice for a journalist or a client. Um, so, the role I was in was our contributor. Um, certainly, my first job uh, was uh, eventually the firm went bankrupt. So, I don't know that they, uh, they were really clear in what they were looking to achieve. Um, in every sector, I did report to people who saw me as this really confident, autonomous person who didn't really need much hand-holding. Um, so, they probably stepped back a little bit. Um, And ultimately, I wasn't really clear on what success looked like. I just thought if I looked busy, that would solve that. So I think looking back now, certainly uh, my personality type um, had a predisposition um, to that. But I also think the working environment, there are a number of probably red flags I'd see now as a professional going into organisations that says lack of clear structure, lack of an idea of what success looks like inability to have constructive conversations around what is accepted and unaccepted behavior and also an education around how how do you work best, rage let's work with that and then let's support you to recover afterwards if you've got a busy campaign uh, let's support you to take a week off after that because you've done you know a week's worth of overtime in the last few weeks um, and essentially those conversations were not conversations that I was privy to so uh, better column a and better column b there and certainly that's when i see when i go into organizations managers don't really know how to have that conversation and people reporting to those managers don't really want to have that conversation because they've lost perspective and they're overtired and fatigued as well and too scary as well
0: it's a catch-22 when you when you are then in that position where you're so fatigued and you're you're so at your wits end to be able to put up you know the red flag and say i you know i need help or i I'm in this place and I don 't know how to get out of it and I 'm semi in crisis mode it's a very difficult place uh, to be able to recover from within that existing organization if and especially if it 's an organization where that's part of the culture you know, where it's sort of fostered as being this is what we expect. So I was really interested in what you just said around having conversations about acceptable behaviour, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And we're talking boundaries there, about boundaries in organisations. In your work that you do now, what what kinds of things, who are, who are you talking to? Are you talking both to organisational leaders and and teams around that, around having those conversations and what does that look like?
1: Yeah, there have been a few interesting groups to emerge. So there's probably three demographics of people who seek a one-on-one counsel with me through the workshops I do. Um, And the first group is 45-year-old plus, usually females, senior executives or females who've been in a role for a significant amount of time, so five years onwards, um and the challenges that they face is that they're working with they've been working for say five, ten years within an organization and they're being perceived a certain way. So they're looking to change their perception. Um, and they've also had a massive confidence knock, so their confidence has eroded over time, um, and they're looking to have their thoughts validated. Um, and, and part of that group um, are also wondering who they might be without their identity as work, as parents, as mothers of their mothers, as partners. And I've had people, individuals within their age bracket, say to me, "I don't know who I am without work." Um, My life is for everyone else and even individuals saying things like I actually feel dead inside I don't care about my work anymore and often that's the first time they've articulated that The second group that um, Have arrived in my offices probably the last six months are males 35 to 45 Um, And they have recently or have recently have had a professional setback or their direct manager or their intimate romantic partner will call me and say, hey, he's acting out of character or he's acted... Um, aggressively recently, or um, he's dropped the ball at work. The phrase drop the ball is pretty um, used with these individuals. And when I have these individuals in my office, I'll say, well, what's going on? And often um, it's a triggered emotion related to something very early on in life that has demonstrated itself within the workplace. And their role as a provider, as a performer, you know, all the peas around, you know, what it means to be a masculine leader are being challenged. Um, and then the third group I work with are people leaders who um, are working with lots of different uh, demographics, be it younger workers, so the first zero to five years of your work where you're learning about what professional looks like and are you allowed to talk in meetings and is turning up at 9.30 with the lash okay or not? <laughs> um, and then working with high performers who want more, 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 and then also um, uh, working with... Uh, working with individuals who are displaying toxic behaviour and unsure how to have those conversations. And truth be told, don't really want to have those conversations, rather not talk about it. And and the first question I ask is, great, so what's been done to date to address this behaviour? Oh, oh, no, no, I'm not here to learn about that. I just want to learn how to manage millennials. So that's a really interesting phrase which has cropped up and that's consistent across um, all markets, all industries and all late age levels. Um, which is really interesting. And then uh, recently I, when I did a workshop with a group of very young leaders, so we're talking around 18 to 24-year-olds, um, we, we did some work around what uh, what behaviour looks like when you're in your green zone and you're loving life and you're doing great, your yellow zone where you're not feeling quite in control, and then your red zone when you're actually out of control you're acting aggressively or passively aggressively. An interesting, a a young man, a young white man, I think he was around 22 from Observation, he said, oh, I I didn't realise I had a choice to not be angry at work. I didn't realise I had a choice to get out of that state. And that's something I'll be taking in with me. And this is his first, second year of a, quote, real job. And, and that's when I realised, wow, we have such an opportunity here, workplaces here to teach what appropriate behaviour looks like in young men, women, people of all identities, genders, ages and ethnicities. And that's, that's when I thought, wow, this work has real power to influence people to, yeah, kick ass and work in a constructive way which can only lead on to positive behaviours outside of work with their intimate partners and friends and wives.
0: Mm. there's there's so many things in that I would love to go and just explore what those zones because that sounds like a really useful tool it obviously cracks something open for this young man so I would love to talk about that if you if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us
1: I'd love to yeah so um I talk around a traffic light system, how we all have an internal traffic light system with green, yellow, and red. And the reason it's so simple is so when you go into that zone, you can identify it pretty quickly. So, interestingly, at my anti burnout workshops or my ASIA work workshops, I'll say, Hey, before we kick off, can you just give me a show of hands how you work best? And people say, Oh, no, we're not here to work, learn that. We're here to learn how to be more efficient. I said, great, well, tell me how working best is, you're a morning person, you're a night person, you're like working autonomously or in chaos, you know, you're only child or a mini child, and very seldom, seldomly individuals will be able to tell me that straight away, it'll have to be a worksheet we work through, which gives us a clue, we're making a lot of assumptions around what uh, people being fully formed humans before they arrive to us in any work or state, right? Yeah, so that's fascinating. Um, and certainly when I came to create Happiness Concierge, I didn't actually know what that looked like for me and I was in my 30s, okay? So that, that gives us another clue. So in our yellow zone, I don't know about you, Kylie, and people listening to this, but when am i in my yellow zone, I am conscious of what I'm doing, but I'm still going to sip that third lash. Eh? I'm feeling a bit anxious, probably a bit sweaty, uh, a little bit overwhelmed and just kind of um, not panic panicking. And, and you know when you have conversations with people who are in this zone, and I've been in this zone many times myself, you kind of want to crack open the door, and be like, "Hey, bro, it's all right. You're all good." So when we think a little bit out of control, and the red zone is when you um, either feel completely out of control, overwhelmed, or um, are more likely to say phrases such as, "I didn't know what I was doing," or "I had a black spot emotionally," or "I had I was really angry when that happened. I can't quote control what I'm doing when I'm in that zone." Um, and you know, psychologists tell me that. Every action is a result of your thoughts and your beliefs and your actions and your fears. So when we talk about a red zone, it's about saying to people in all workplaces, it's okay to say that we all have a red zone, okay? I, myself, am passive-aggressive, more likely to be sarcastic. I actually get a sore eye because I roll my eyes so much when I'm in out-of-control zone, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm critical of others glass half empty and I'm a cruel cruel person to be around when I'm in that zone and so when we talk about those zones what we bring out the elephant in the room and say hey everybody has these what are some tactical things we can do to get out of the red and into yellow and once we're back in yellow how can we slowly massage us back to green let Get real, we're not going to be green full-time. But we're, when we're in the yellow zone, that gives us a clue. And when we have those conversations with people leaders from all ages and people in the groups, and the people leader says, I tell you what, I know when I'm in the red, when I just lose my lose my stuff around a meeting not going on time, I'm going to make a commitment to pull out my yellow card and say, sorry, guys, I'm acting out of the line. And that gives people permission to say, oh, we do all act badly. That's a part of the human condition. It's okay to admit that because when we don't admit that in workplaces, that's when some very, very, very toxic behaviour can come out and play, even by people who are, you know, great people that just act out of line when they're stressed, like we all do, myself included.
0: Mm. That's um, such a simple way of giving people a, a framework and a, and a language around. Getting in, being curious about their emotions and being able to label what's going on. Um, You know, in much of the training that I've gone through too, you know, they talk about being able to label it in order to tame it. And, you know, the fact that you've given them language to help them label it and also normalize that this is part of the human experience and that it is, you know, okay to feel these things, but also here are some tools to help. You know, manage it and communicate it, and and hopefully bounce back up out of it. Because we can't always be working; it's just not in our human capacity to always be in the green zone. But to have some, you know, some of the shared dialogue. So, do you, so. You do this work in teams within organisations.
1: Yeah, both one-on-one and within teams. Uh, the most common request I get is, "Can you come in and talk to our team around managing millennials?" Um, And what I read from that is great. There's an opportunity to talk about behaviours and that's not to do with millennials, that's across the whole board. Um, so certainly the, my most common request is come in to talk about something that's um, not threatening, something that everyone can look at improving on, but really it's a thinly veiled disguise to talk about feelings. Um, but in a way that's like, hey, guys, like here's a bit of an elephant in the room, let's think about some ideas to tackle it. And when you talk about tackling things or using sporting analogies, like you say, l- label it to tame it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it can be really really powerful and then I've had people as a result contact me privately to say I just want to let you know that I actually found out out of control recently and thanks for letting me know I have a choice.
0: Mm, yes, and that goes back to that belief that you were talking about, that you do actually have a choice in how you respond. And the first step, as it, as it, you know, as it said with that young man, I didn't realize I had a choice other than to be angry at work. That's phenomenal. How do we arrive forgetting that we are, actually have choices? What, what do you think, you know I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea that we have to be a different person at work? and that we have to leave our humanity at the door when we walk in. Walk in. Why do you think that is?
1: Ah, uh, so many thoughts on this. I suppose the first thing I've observed is that we're taught, we're taught how to treat others the way that our parents or our parental figures teach us, how based on how they have treated each other, um, around respect, around language, around patience, around conflict, whether you one avoids conflict or one leaves the room when they're uh, faced with conflict or whether they come back and use their grown-up words. Um, I, th- I think how we're raised is one factor. I think how we socialise is another and around accepted behaviour. Um, yeah, it's, it's so complex. But I suppose the biggest contributor to that kind of sense of whether I can, quote, be myself at work is around I believe language, the language we use around leadership training. I mean, sure, let's use that language. Is that helpful? But is it helpful? Is it helpful language to say, when we're at home, I'm a 34-year-old single woman, and when I'm hired as a happiness concierge, I'm a leadership consultant? Are you effing for real? Look, I'm a human saying here's some observations I've made based on human behaviour. But the truth is when we talk about money, status, ego and ego what it means to provide or be a leader or why we seek to be leaders I think that's some really interesting work and certainly the biggest the the biggest contribution to my burnouts was feeling that I was my private self at home you know dancing in the mirror to Beyonce versus my public self at work which was quote professional and I wore suits and I know that because the first thing my dad bought me in my workforce was a suit to signal you know, like uh, I'm effing proud of you and I want you to look the part and go you. And so for many years I wore suits and heels and fabulous wardrobe, by the way. Um, but it was only recently where I actually felt comfortable to not wear high heels to work because that was a subtle, subtle signifier about what it meant to look, dress, act, speak the part. Um, so, yeah, why we can talk about uh, what it means to be successful in leadership, I think addressing the language around do you want to work with people who are your sort of people and our clients, if you're internal, our clients are other kind of wildebeests who don't have families and anxieties and thoughts? We're all people and we're all good at different stuff and let's kind of get over this obsession with leadership. Um, it, I, I would encourage it. I think a more useful language could be like, behavior training or being good people training that could be that could be more helpful I think
0: this this suit analogy is so much the armor that we put on in order to protect ourselves from the the vulnerability and the uncertainty of showing up and not knowing how it's going to go and especially when you said when you were, you know, in your 20s and you, if you didn't know things, you didn't feel like you could ask for help and, you know, it was kind of this bravado of, you know, I need to have it all figured out and and the suit is actually almost like a physical manifestation that I've, you know, I've, I've got my shit together and I'm out in the world and I know these things when we all know, we all inside have our doubts, our insecurities, our fears, our you know, our ups and downs and, and personal challenges that arise that we have no control over that decide to turn up one day and make themselves at home and give us work to do. So I, I, I think, you know, that that whole idea of, you know, how we actually armour up before we go into to work and then how that physically manifests in, you know, this this shell that we then operate within um, is is so interesting. Um and the languaging around leadership is because it's so palatable, you know, rather than saying, oh, I'm a human that needs to do a bit of work on my own personal stuff, you know, the, the kind of admitting that, oh, I don't have it all worked out is just, is not something that we're comfortable hearing around others. And yet it's, it's how we connect and how we bring out the most in people so Rach you have a number of workshops that you run would you mind one of the one of the ones I think I'm really interested in is the values audit and would you mind giving us a little bit of insight into how that works
1: yeah yeah so um uh One of the biggest contributors to people feeling overwhelmed or in their red zone, if we want to talk that language, is feeling that they're one person at home, one person at work. And when I say to them, what's really important to you? They say, I don't know. So um, I give them a pack of, I think it's around 56 cards with words such as honesty, integrity, respect, family, love, power, money, um, all of these words. And I ask them to choose three words that a folks evoke some form of physical or emotional response in them. And they don't need to know why. They just need to feel a physical or emotional response. And then I ask them to choose one word one word or one value that they would rather walk away from than compromise. And often they find with those three words that the three words that give them a emotional response, they realize that those words are not showing up in their current day-to-day, either at home at work. So for females, predominantly they'll use the word, they'll select the word recognition. Uh, men will often use the word family. And across all genders and industries, a word that is very commonly selected is integrity. And when I ask a little bit deeper about why integrity is presenting to them, is they often say, my colleague, my boss, they talk the talk, but they do not walk the walk. And they do not support the actions that they purport to say that they do. And the words that I ask around, what is one value that you would rather walk away from and compromise often that reveals to them that that's why that either at my anti-burnout workshop or the brand new workshop or anything I can get their hands on is because I don't feel like I'm working to my inner values. And I think the biggest lesson that I have learned is when we don't work to our inner values, we start, Chipping away at our inner self around our worthiness. Can you even trust my point of view? Is the thought valid and it erodes our confidence and we end up in a role that either doesn't serve us, we're not kicking ass, we're not earning what we, we believe we're truly worth and that affects every single um, other aspect of work, um, who we believe we deserve to be partnered with, with um, intimate partners, who we deserve, we belong to, we deserve to work with and uh, yeah, what we deserve in life. So, yeah, it's a bit deep. It's a bit life coachy, but I encourage people to go there. Um, and interestingly, one of the most one of the most popular um, with recruit recruiters um, and people leaders um, when they're looking for a light-hearted activity to do over a team building lunch. And I think that's really interesting that like a facilitator to have what's quite a heavy discussion, but again, around positive solutions. This is a positive. We want to get to know you, want to help you kick ass at work using your values. And by the way, they're all possible at work. Sometimes it's around articulating them and going, aha uh-huh. well, actually, all I need to do to resolve that is tell my boss, when you do this thing, but you don't follow up, that really annoys me. <laughs> it can't be as simple as that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that was interesting that you mentioned that you saw there was gender differences around those words. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yes, so the word recognition is very popular with professional women um, and there are a few theories on that. So in a recent workshop I did with recruiter, recruitment leaders from a lot of blue ship firms, the women were predominantly um, 45 plus and they said the word recognition and they said the following or variations of the following. I always try to give my staff recognition and tap them on the back because I never get that myself or I never feel like I get that myself. So an observation we make in these sessions is if I'm demonstrating behaviour out of a deficit How can I use that deficit to say to my people leader, I need a bit more of this to top up my mojo tank? Um, Because often we're good at deflecting our feelings forward, but we're not good at facing upwards or backwards. And around the men saying family, um, I had one really um, interesting moment where a CFO said to me, I've chosen the word family and I'm going to put this in my wallet because I realise that I say this is important to me, but when I look at my schedule, I don't make time for that. I don't make time for that. Um, And he said that he and his partner had really made steps around banning the phone at dinner times. And he said, actually, you know, I am going off to do um, recreational things and saying that I'm busy, but really it's because I'm avoiding just, you know, spending time with the thing that I would like more, which is family. And, I I wonder whether that plays a large role and statistically less men take paternity leave um, than women uh, around a gendered stigma, around whether it's okay um, for uh, a man in Australasian countries or non-Swedish countries really to take paternity leave. Um, around conversations, um, you know, heterosexual couples have around the financial split of finances when they have children, make a decision to have children, or whether when they find a lovely surprise of having a child. Um, All those subtleties come into play. Um, And I think also with the integrity part, I mean, that's across all ages and groups, that is absolutely no surprise to me because when I speak to managers and say, hey, so what have you done to... uh, with this constructive behaviour, you can pay me thousands of dollars to come in and tell you logic over a few hours over lunch. Or you could use the following sentence. They say to me, be great if you could come in, that would be great. Because there's a stigma around, quote, being the bad guy, right? That, But studies have shown that people have more respect for their bosses when they laid down the boundaries and they had the hard conversations and they say, as to be honest, a people leader said to me when I was 22, Rach, love the enthusiasm can't have your high-heeled feet on the chair when you're in a client meeting, but love that you turned up to work today. And if he hadn't said that to me, I would have thought that it was normal work behaviour. Are you crazy? What another bloody millennial?
0: <laughs> so, h- how do we show up to have those hard conversations? How what are the what are the things where because we need to be having them more often, and we need to be having the courage to have them. How do, you, how do we actually talk about those things and how do we present, show up to, you know, to have things when often confrontation is one of the things that we would rather, you know, fall off a cliff than, you know, show up and have a hard conversation that might upset someone
1: that that's really interesting isn't it so um, I'm really interested in the word conflict or avoiding conflict or being the bad guy because ultimately you're avoiding conflict when you have these conversations <laughs> you're avoiding <laughs> escalating bad behavior and I think that you know I think that removing any firstly removing any emotion from the fat swap you're about to give that person so um always delivering you know, like a no sandwich like Hey, um, validate the other person. Love that you turn up to work today. Just letting you know, turning up at 10 a.m. isn't the way we do business around here. When we say things like we, we do business around here, it's less finger pointing. Just say it's not how we do business around here. Anyway, looking forward to and something more positive. But I think you're more likely to be motivated uh, to have constructive conversations when um, when you realise that the behaviour you embody is the behaviour that you um, accept and that the behaviour that others mirror or are taught from you. So when you say to someone, you know, hey, buddy, like, um, it up to work at 10am today, just letting you know, got to be here at 9am, it's kind of a thing... Um, Other people in the room, when they're becoming new managers go, oh, that's how I had that grown-up conversation. Um, Because so many, you know, so many colleagues of mine over a wine will say, oh, my God, you know, like this colleague's driving me nuts. I keep riding late. And I'm like, great, so have you told them they can't arrive late? No, I'm not going to do that. I want to be the bad guy. And that's when I realised, well, we're not taught how to have these conversations in friendships in intimate partnerships or in any other world. So why the heck will we do that when money, ego, and power is at play? We're we're put in the worst possible arena. So the more that we can be taught that and be encouraged to use our words in real life, and that's about how you're taught, how you socialize your friends and all that, and without the fear of consequence or asking yourself, what is the worst case consequence? If someone is gonna act irrationally or out of line, nine times out of ten that has zero to do with your execution and more to do with their internal filters but equally you drop a plate on the ground the plate's still broken you're still going to have an effect from that and that's based on whether you've seen your parents or your friends or those who have raised you have constructive conversations that have ended well or not through passive aggressive martyrdom and sighing and slamming the door and avoiding or storming in the next day it's around have I been taught to use my words and Do I, can I go home and actually feel proud of the way that I've communicated today? Well, hopefully, yes, but probably not. We're all human. What could I do better tomorrow? Because someone out there is watching you going, oh, that's how I'd be a grown-up. I want to be like her, him or or them.
0: Mm. So being a grown-up at work, oh my gosh, I know what it's like to be at work and feel like you're you know, at kindergarten sometimes, you know, um, we're all just trying, you know, we're all just doing our best at the, of what what is in our capacity at the time. But that awareness that we talked about, you know, the fact that you do have a choice and being able to own the fact that you have a choice is, is the first step in, of that. I think that's um, super important. And then having the language around that. But what about if it was something that was a little bit more serious than just someone showing up For work late, or perhaps it's just someone who's serially turning up for work late. You know, when you know a a sort of a such a laissez-faire kind of approach might not be getting through. What are what are your suggestions for some of the tougher conversations?
1: Yeah, I think always remove the emotions. So always have an output, be it with a family or a friend, where you can have those emotional reactive conversations. First. So You're like, oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah, like get the feeling out first If so that's in the gym or with a partner or just Bleh. um, And then second, I would seek the counsel of your HR rep or internally to say, hey... What would I need to put in place to ensure that we're managing this effectively and we're doing the right thing by this individual? Um, And often you'll find that a record of verbal and written communication outlining the uh, non-acceptable behaviour and the suggestions that you had to support that individual to either A, not do that again, or B, train them so they're aware of their their skill gap um, can be very advantageous. So For example, if, um, and very rarely is behaviour done in isolation. So if you're having a um, a challenge with an individual um, who might be, for example, acting inappropriately to another team member, he, she, or they are very likely to have acted inappropriately, statistically, um, to other humans in their life. And therefore, any written evidence that you can have that says, hey, um, I just want to let you know that that behaviour is not not, not how we do business around here. I just want to have this in writing to say, hey, let's not, let's not continue to do that. Um, if this does continue, we'll need to have another conversation. It um, means that accumulatively over the days, months and years that you have written examples of this behaviour which is not acceptable. Um, and and I think having a conversation um, with a witness can be very advantageous and understanding that of course uh, the person who you're um, having that tough conversation with has the right of course to bring a support person as well. Uh, Recording that conversation um, is highly advised um, as well as following up in writing as well. Um, People don't, um, people are less likely to act uh, through bad behaviour, if there are consequences applied. So being very clear about what the consequences would be um, if this behaviour was to continue as a really good first step.
0: Mm. So what came up for me when you were talking about that was um, understanding that emotions always get the first crack at whatever story is evolving or unfolding in front of us. So we all, you know... We can think, we, you know, we like to believe that we're thinking beings first and, you know, and then we have feelings and emotions. But in fact, it's, it's not that way at all. We are emotional beings first and foremost, who sometimes think and feel certain ways. So, I, I, that's so ins- insightful what you said about you know when the, when the emotions come to town <laughs> find a healthy way of, of discharging them some way um, and knowing that about yourself about what do you need do you need you got that phone a friend that you can just go I cannot believe blah, 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 you know someone that's in confidence and that you know will, will will be on on your side but discharging that in a healthy way rather than you um, than taking down, you know, um, like that Michael Douglas film of those years ago, so I love that, you know. I love that sort of find a way to have a conversation about this with someone who's safe that you can get you can get it out and let the emotion, you know, get curious about what's what's behind your emotion as well. Um, and then it sounded to me also like you know there's some kind of rehearsing or trying to unpack it or unfolding, you know, the, what what's actually happened and, and find a way into it. Um, that's that that's what also I've seen has been quite helpful and and useful in that and and having you know trusted parties that you can that you can call on because as you said, we're actually not taught how to have these hard conversations or maybe we are taught, but we don't necessarily have good role models, you know we're not taught perhaps in uh, proactive or positive ways actually to ha- have these conversations where where we all recognise that we're emotionally hooked in the first instance and how to give ourselves some, some space between that emotion and our response and take a breath um, and have some languaging around that. So thank you for sharing that. It's great to see that that's the work that you're putting out in the world.
1: Well, it's, yeah, I remember um... And it continues to teach me. I remember a workshop participant saying she'd read a study that the best time to respond to an email was three hours after the fact because that's how long it takes your brain to calm down. So let that all be a lesson for us all.
0: <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm actually looking into the area of conversational intelligence, which is all about the neuroscience of conversations. And cortisol, which is our stress home hormone, has been shown to stay in our system for up to 26 hours after sort of the initial trigger. So, that's, you know, and if you think about the accumulation of stress and you were talking about um, adrenal fatigue, uh, at, 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 you know, in your 20s, you know, if that continues to, you know, ride through our system and be triggering that distrust that happens Um, In our brain, when we we get into into that, it's no wonder that, you know, things, small things can become big things. Um, Because I was listening to a, a, a video by the management consultant and expert, Jim Collins, yesterday, and he said, you know, you need to confront the brutal facts, or they will confront you. So if you don't have these hard conversations, it's not like the problems go away. It's that they they persist and they manifest until one day they become a much bigger problem. Um, and so I think that's one. Hard lesson that I've learned in my business life is to try and have those uncomfortable conversations sooner rather than later because they don't get any more comfortable <laughs> um, and the problems don't get any smaller. So, um, so I'm with you in, in 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 showing up and having those conversations. Could you tell us a little bit more about the other workshops that you run? So you you have ones about finding your mojo again. I love that word and it's so you and I imagine and I see you, you know, calling up your inner Beyonce when you talk about mojo. What happens in a mojo session? <laughs> well, I'm a fair believer that um,
1: everyone has the capacity to be their own version of a rock star. If they want to, the rest is just admin. So in a mojo session, we go through what's important to you, your values, Um, The people who are giving you mojo and the people who are causing you to have a um, mojo deficit That's called a people audit and that's a free tool on my website Um, We talk about uh, the ways in which you work best at work, um, which you thrive or where you survive and then we talk around, okay, why are you in my room today? What are you feeling? What's your first emotional response? And what zone are we in there? Green, yellow, red. Um, and what filters are happening in your life? So, if you're in the red zone, are you displaying suspicion, uh, passive aggression, avoidance? And if so, what's triggered that? We usually do a bit of a map, like, oh, this reminds you of your mother when you were 12, or whatever. <laughs> or whatever it is like that. I'm not talking about you, mum, if you are listen to this. But um, uh, and then we go, okay, well, if that is the case and the greater goal is to feel you know great at work or even just better to how we are now, um, what are some easy wins that you can take home with you to go, oh, you know what, I'm going to be okay. And sometimes they're practical tools and often it's validation. You're not crazy, you're not alone, and yes, Yes, I, I, an independent source who's not an intimate partner or your boss, agree with you. You are not crazy. Uh, so that's a Mojo session. Um, and then I also do workshops on Brand You, which is about embracing your inner imposter syndrome um, and communicating your value in a way that doesn't feel sleazy, salesy, inauthentic. Um, and how to say, g'day, my, you know, this is my name, this is what I do, this one I want to do more of. Um, And then I also do anti-burnout workshops, which is around like, hey, how to work more effectively, how to have grown-up conversations, how to deliver a no sandwich, um, and also how to ask for what you want. And I do find that approximately 20% of participants in those anti-burnout workshops are actually HR managers who are new managers going, I've got a few people in my team who might be displaying those symptoms, I'm just here to learn what are the red flags and what are the words I should be using? Um, so they come to learn, <laughs> learn from there. But ultimately it's about giving you yourself, you know, mojo and work and or life. So then when you do have challenging things crop up, it's about saying, hey, is that important? Is that going to help me earn or learn more? If not, is it really worth my time? Uh, so that's some lessons that I've learned myself and I now share with others both in Australia Singapore New Zealand and in September and October Vancouver and San
0: Francisco oh you've gone global we're just like the universe <laughs> of the happiness concierge now um, but uh, we I'm just mindful of the time and we're coming to a close so what are the three things that you would love for people to take away from our chat today
1: oh I love a good takeaway session um, learning how to say no will change your life. So happinessconcierge.com day you slash say no, download the template. Learn is that, that, is no. that the no sandwich? That's the no sandwich. If You learn how to say no, it will actually change your life. Um, never seek advice from people who aren't in the shoes that you would like to be in. So be mindful of taking advice from people um, who may have best of intentions, but might, might not have the experience to help you get to where you'd like to go next. Um waiting for approval from others is like waiting for Kanye to lose his ego It's never going to happen do things before you're before you're comfortable That's the only way you get better at something is by doing something before you're good at it <laughs> um, And finally no behavior uh, no behavior affects only you or your behavior affects other people good positively or otherwise um, and talk about things that you'd like more of not what you're currently doing. Talk more about the things you'd like more of and it would be, you might be surprised at what opportunities present themselves.
0: We, that's the bonus plan because we just got five there instead of three. So thank you. Thank you for putting that in, putting those in. Where can we find out more about you and what you have to offer the universe?
1: <laughs> happinessconcierge.com. It's got everything you need to do. Upcoming events, free
0: how-tos and templates. Love to see you there. Rach, thanks so much for having a great conversation with me today. One of my beliefs is that we don't things don't get better unless we talk about them. And Mm -hmm. the work that you're doing in the world absolutely helps people Find the courage to have those conversations and have somebody in their corner that will give them really practical advice and tools and tips and and the validation for, for you know that, that these things are important in life and you're not crazy for not knowing how to do them or slipping up because conversations don't happen in a vacuum as you said and also they're not a one-time thing you know just because we may not have experienced, a good conversation over something doesn't mean it's the end of the road, it's an ongoing thing and that's one of the lessons that I've learned is that a tough conversation doesn't just happen once, it might be an ongoing dialogue and the conversations that you're encouraging people to have in their workplace and ha- and how to show up at work obviously not only has great opportunities to impact the contribution that they make to their work, but also to then show up in their lives as, you know, the kind of people that, you know, to to live with that integrity um, as, as, you know, as we were talking about. So, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of In The Company. I hope you've enjoyed listening and tucked away a few gems to bring to your working life. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to our channel. And if you've loved what you've heard today, please share it with your kinfolk who might also be in the need of some good company. And finally, if you feel so inclined, we'd be super grateful for a review on iTunes.